Hi everybody and welcome back to Film School Fuss Ups. I'm your host Drew Morton, Associate Professor of Mass Communication at Texas A&M University in Texarkana. Before we get started today with our rather unorthodox episode, I thought I'd do a little uh, state of the race, state of the situation, and uh, recount some of my uh, latest finds in the movie theater and uh, at home. Um, unfortunately, I haven't really watched a whole lot of old uh, material at home. It's been a bit of a slow month after a relatively heavy October catching up on old horror movies. So a couple of the titles uh, I'm going to mention are probably overly obvious, um, but, you know, let's let's do it anyways. First up, I kicked off November with the, with the Orson Welles film Other Side of the Wind, uh, which obviously has been a long time coming and had gone through uh, some pretty major production and post-production challenges. And uh, I'm here to tell you that I actually really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was kind of this Cubist-esque painting of New Hollywood. Uh, I thought his art film critique of Antonioni especially uh, was pretty well done. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really surprised it hangs together as well as it does. And uh, Netflix is really should be applauded for the... Uh, effort they've put into the release here where they've tied it together with a, a Morgan Neville documentary. He did the uh, Mr. Rogers documentary that came out this year uh, called the, the the Wells documentary. is called The Love Me When I'm Dead. And it goes into detail on the production of the film. And then there was a shorter tie-in uh, documentary, maybe 40 minutes, called I think it's called uh, Final Cut for Orson. And uh, it's really I, I, I think maybe the better of the two pieces um, because the earlier documentary on the production doesn't touch on the post-production work and how they managed to pull this off and what was involved in it and uh, so kind of knowing that story already I was more interested in how they actually did it and there's this really touching scene where Danny Houston the son of John has to uh, come in and re-record his dad's uh, dialogue for ADR and it's it's really uncanny hearing him impersonate his dad and then reflect upon it. It's it's just very touching. Uh, so I I really enjoyed Other Side of the Wind. I feel like I have to see it a second time. Uh, it is pretty disorienting in the cutting of the film. I I wouldn't say that the film's difficult to follow, and I would say that it also follows a lot of Wells's other tropes about storytelling, about legend, trying to get to know uh, the truth behind somebody. Uh, behind this kind of facade of fame and masculinity, uh, that is certainly there. So, Other Side of the Wind on Netflix, which if you haven't been living in a hole, you probably already know about. Um, the other three finds I've had recently uh, are, are new releases, and uh, the first of which was Widows by Steve McQueen. This film kind of threw me for a loop. I think I was expecting something more than a relatively straightforward genre film, given that it's Steve McQueen, given the pedigree of the cast. And, uh, yeah, so I, I went in with kind of expectations that it was going to be more art house. And it certainly has some art house elements, and it's not to say that it isn't about things. It's It's about interracial marriage. It's about 
police on uh, black violence in Chicago. So there are, there's definitely some subtext and, and some themes floating around, but it, it just surprised me how straightforward it was in its approach, mainly because of it's almost this kind of trick McQueen does with casting where he'll get a really great actor or actress to show up for like 30 seconds. So like Jackie Weaver plays the mother character of one of the widows. And the minute I see her, I'm like, oh, it's Jackie Weaver. She's going to be in here for a while. And she she gets one scene. Carrie Coon, uh, great character or actress, if we want to call her that, which I think is maybe slightly disparaging, but she's fantastic. I've loved her all the way back to Gone Girl. And, of course, her work on The Leftovers. And, uh, yeah, again, she gets maybe three minutes of screen time. So part of me wonders if there was a longer cut. But part of me also, upon reflecting on it, uh, started to think about how McQueen was kind of doing what Steven Soderbergh did in, in The Limey, which is he would use an actor or actress's shorthand to kind of get you to bring the the external baggage with him and just be like, okay, I, I'm not going to have time to give you a full backstory on Jackie Weaver, but you know when you see her from the other roles you've seen her in that she is this type of person, and Carrie Coon is going to be this type of person. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very kind of minimal that way, but there's so many great shots and scenes and needle drops. The The soundtrack is incredibly eclectic. It goes from this great live version of uh, Wild is the Wind by Nina Simone uh, to Van Morrison in a really nauseating uh, kind of a physically violent scene and uh, and it's got a new Cerné single so what's what's not to like about that um, so Widows definitely worth checking out uh, I'm actually curious to see it a second time after that uh, another Netflix uh, film that I checked out was The Ballad of Buster Scruggs I, I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan. Um, I was a little lukewarm on this one, quite frankly. Um, it might just be the, the the short film format, the kind of anthology format that tends to leave me a little um, cold. And it's mainly because I find that so many filmmakers deal with the same couple of themes that by distilling it down to six films rather than one deeper and more nuanced film that I just feel like I've watched the same content over and over again. So the first uh, sequence of Buster Scruggs is, is very much like a Sam Peckinpah or Quentin Tarantino Looney Brothers cartoon. It's fantastic. It's it's funny. It's violent in a way that they haven't been violent in a while. Um, I love it. Uh, the second one I actually really enjoyed had uh, James Franco and Stephen Root and it, again, it's got the usual Coen Brothers theme of iron, of irony and, and fatalism and how people are doomed no matter what they do. Uh, so we've certainly been seeing that for probably the last 15 years of their career. So nothing incredibly fresh. It's more the approach in the first two that I appreciated. Uh, I think the third piece has Liam Neeson, so it was two Liam Neeson films this weekend. And uh, Nicole's assessment of Widows was rather funny. She said, don't be pulling in that white shit, white people shit on me. So once you see Widows, you'll get the joke. Um, and Neeson is great here, but I also knew as soon as the setup started how it was going to pan out and what was going to happen. And very quickly, I started to wonder. I was like, man, I almost wish I would watch one of, you know, one of these a day at a time or something because they just felt 
pretty repetitious after after a time. Uh, the fourth one has Tom Waits, probably one of probably one of my top two or three in the film. Um, Tom Waits is so great as a character actor and doesn't get enough appreciation. And then the last two are really where Buster Scruggs kind of fizzled out for me. I they're the longest of the two or the longest of the six, and I just felt like the the film slowly lost momentum. Now, all of that being said. Let me preface by saying that, like Kubrick, the Coen brothers for me are some of those directors who I'll watch one of their movies, I won't get it, and I'll come back a year later with fresh eyes and a new perspective, and I'll really appreciate it. Uh, This happened with Big Lebowski, which I saw in high school and disliked because it wasn't Fargo. It happened with uh, Inside Llewellyn Davis, which I thought uh, dealt with the same themes of Serious Man, again, kind of you know, man being doomed to uh, fail in that kind of, uh, that fatalism. And uh, as time went on, I, I couldn't get it out of my head, and I really loved the music, and Inside Llewellyn Davis is now one of my favorites. Burn After Reading, I I really disliked the first time I saw it, but now, because of contemporary events, seems more relevant than ever. Um, although I still think that film needs some work. So I'll be curious to see how Ballad of Buster Scruggs holds up uh, on a repeat viewing down the road sometime. Last uh, last new film that I was able to catch up on was uh, the remake of Suspiria, finally. I don't think we'll be recording a podcast episode on it now. It's just It's been very difficult to find. A friend of mine hooked me up with a screener because the closest it got to me was about 200 miles away, and I wasn't going to drive six or seven hours to go see a three-hour movie. Um, so I, I don't know why Amazon chose the distribution pattern that they did. It really didn't make sense considering that Halloween had been in theaters two weeks before Suspiria. I think they easily could have pushed Suspiria to a couple more theaters and, you know, flyover country. So that, that perplexes me, uh, especially given how much money they must have spent on this thing. Uh, anyways, Suspiria, the film, I I was just trying to justify why I didn't necessarily see Suspiria in the most ideal of circumstances, and I do wish I would have seen it on a big screen, because it is certainly a thrilling aesthetic experience. Uh, Everything, I know some people are blasting the color scheme. I I quite frankly appreciated how far um, the team was willing to go in not doing... A direct remake or homage. Uh, aesthetically, it doesn't have the saturated colors of the first one. The Tom York score brings a very different kind of melancholy to the film than the uh, the Goblin score of the Argento version. Uh, I think Tilda Swinton actually, I mean, obviously she's a great actress, but I think the the character she plays, the psychiatrist character, the male character brings a lot of pathos to the film and kind of justifies the film uses both the Bader Meinhof kind of rebellion terrorist organization and the Holocaust as as two backstories and themes that tie in. I don't think they tie in terribly directly and they can be kind of frustrating and I wish they would have done a little more or a little less it's it's kind of hard to say um I can certainly see where it amplifies and augments some of the themes about generations and ideology and violence and politics but 
Yeah, I, I, I don't think the film embarrassed itself on these fronts, but I do think that it could have done a better job. That being said, when you bring the Holocaust into a film, that's that's bringing a lot of you know a lot of baggage, and you want to make sure that you, even in a horror film, kind of show it a bit of respect, right? So, I thought Swinton's performance grounded that and made it come across in a way that it wasn't exploitative. I'm sure other people disagree with me, but it it, it worked uh, for me. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm really excited to see this one again. Again, I I hope I can see it on a big screen because about 90 minutes in of watching this on my laptop, I was just kind of like, this would be so much better in a theater with 5.1 and you know a a, a really decent visual transfer because of especially because of the use of red towards the end which of course you know once you start watching dvds doesn't necessarily translate very well and it gets very muddy so needless to say i hope amazon does right by this film and uh you know gives it a proper home video transfer to make up for the rather disastrous uh theatrical release that they gave it so those have been my my recent finds uh at the uh at the multiplexer, at the online version of the multiplex. Uh, today, I have a rather untraditional episode. Uh, we have a live recording of a discussion that two of my colleagues and I did about the film Fried Green Tomatoes. Fried Green Tomatoes was a film that we had all seen before, um, but because of our annual campus theme on gender issues, we wanted to do a um, a screening that brought out some of the issues that we had been reading about in the campus reader and discussing in some of our lectures. And we also wanted to tie that to uh, the innovation lab that I direct and do a podcast tutorial. So essentially, it's it's unorthodox because we were trying to kill approximately three birds with one stone. Um, we needed to re-record a new where we needed to record a new episode of the podcast. I wanted to show people how to do podcasting, um, both in my speech class and in my uh, lab. And we wanted to do this screening for um, the. Uh, the annual campus theme. So my biggest of thanks to a number of different people here. First off, the team behind the Program for Learning and Community Engagement. That's our organization place on campus. Uh, so Corinne Hinton, Angie Sikorsky, and uh, Celeste McNeil, and Liz Patterson, and all of their support staff were really great in pulling this off. Our Dean, Dean Doty, uh, for giving me a budget so I could get some food for the uh, the students coming. And my big thanks to the the folks who turned out on a Wednesday night uh, before Thanksgiving, or sorry, a Tuesday night before Thanksgiving, to come spend three hours watching an old Jessica Tandy movie with us. And um, my largest thanks to uh, my two colleagues, Rachel Stone Cipher and Jamie Cantrell. They'll, they'll introduce themselves at the beginning of the episode, but they're two of our new hires, and I'm just extremely lucky that they're here. It's so wonderful to, to have... Um, two colleagues who kind of work on what I work on that's not a slight against my other colleagues but they're, they're more film people than than English or literature people and um, we, we have a lot of the same interests and a lot of the same background so it's been really intellectually invigorating to have them around and so I really appreciate them and uh, I thank them being brand new on campus uh, to uh, take on a project like this with me so my biggest of thanks to them uh, before we, we cut to the the live section, I wanted to start off with a, a brief personal anecdote about Fried Green Tomatoes. Um, when Jamie and Rachel picked this film, I was extremely moved. Um, 
fried green tomatoes means a lot to me. And uh, it particularly means a lot to me because it reminds me of my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother was a tremendous role model in my life, I guess would be the, the right way to put it. Uh, I went over to her house basically every day after school. Uh, she babysat me and my brother when my parents were working. She was like my second mother. And she taught me what books to like. My, my grandma and grandpa were extremely um, kind of guiding in my literature and film viewing practices. She'd watch any kind of movie. She'd make me watch a Barbara Streisand movie with her. I'd make her watch Batman. We'd cook something, and it would be a wonderful experience. She also reminds me of Jessica Tandy's character in this, which, for for different reasons, that we're going to discuss in the, in the back end. But my grandma, um, Maxine, who went by Max, uh, was was very strong and independent. She gambled, she drank, she drove a little red sports car. Uh, she was a slot jockey. She did not exactly conform to the gender ideals of femininity uh, at the time that I knew her. I, I would have loved, I'd love to take a time machine back and see what she was like in the, you know, the 50s and 60s, but she's she was extremely strong in knowing who she was and what she wanted to do, and I loved her for that. And she made me more confident as a person because she essentially would just tell you to, you know, for, you know, fly your uh, fly your freak flag. So, um, yeah, we would we would talk cards, we'd talk books, and so every time I get to the end of this film, um, and she starts reminiscing about Ruth, and you know her previous life, and I, I, we'll, we'll talk about the ambiguity there uh, in the podcast itself. It's just the, the, the point where, the, the, let me just put it this way, the point where the film tries to tease out that she may die uh, just moves me to tears every time, and uh, part of that's because of the way my grandma um, left me, and uh, she was in hospice and had cancer, and I was at college, and it had been a long time since I had seen her, and I knew she wasn't doing well, and I went to see her and said goodbye and gave her a kiss and didn't think I was going to see her again, and got in my car and drove away, and I got back to the dorm about 20 minutes away, and I found out she was gone. So it's it's one of those moments just in terms of the staging, uh, seeing Jessica Tandy in the bed and, you know, her demeanor and all of that, and it, it just it, it always deeply affects me, especially because it was one of the films we had often watched together, so... There's my, my my long kind of sob story anecdote about why I am extremely, extremely, uh, I am a tremendous fan, let me put it that way, of uh, fried green tomatoes. Uh, and, and even though that may be strange, seems rather strange. Uh, <laughs> so um, thank you again to Rachel and Jamie. And here is our conversation about fried green tomatoes. Uh, a quick disclaimer about the sound quality. We used a different kind of microphone for this one, given that it was a group setting in a lecture hall. So it sounds a little airier than normal. Uh, so please, uh, please be patient with that. Thank you. Thank you all for coming tonight again, and uh, I hope this is a productive conversation. Obviously, you two probably bring something very different to this film than I do, um, so I'm excited to talk about it. Um, yeah. Hi, everybody, um, and hi to the, to the recorder. I, I'm Rachel Stonecipher. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Pennsylvania who forgot her glasses and can kind of make out your faces. Um, <laughs> And I, I dabble in queer media studies and cultural studies and, and like film history and things like that. So, yeah. 
Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Jamie Cantrell. I am an assistant professor of English at TAMU-T and I specialize in 20th century American literature with an emphasis in Southern sexuality studies. I teach Fanny Flagg's Fried Green Tomatoes and the film adaptation uh, in some of my popular lit courses, previous courses at a different institution. Um, I also work in women's and gender studies with an emphasis in queer theory. Happy to be here. <laughs> so I guess we'll start with a, a fairly obvious question, the, the common question when we're discussing films like this, which is how faithful is it to the book? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's a really good start, actually, and I'm going to jump right in. Uh, so the, the film adaptation of Fried Green Tomatoes uh, premiered in, in 1991. Uh, in early 1990s, America, which was otherwise, and you might speak to what was happening in terms of like major blockbuster films at the time, um, the, you know, I, I've seen film reviews of Fragging Tomatoes that called it the little film that could amidst an Arnold Schwarzenegger sort of obsessed 1990s America, very much invested in, in adventure films and, and high impact like action. Uh, the novel was published in 1987 uh, by Random House and uh, it had a pretty, um, a pretty good reception uh, as, as well. Um, so in terms of uh, how true or how faithful uh, the, the film was to the novel, I think one of the first sort of immediate questions that students tend to ask is, you know, to what responsibility do filmmakers have at all uh, to be authentic toward a primary text like a, like a novel, right? Is that really, you know, um, a, a primary goal that filmmakers should have in the first place? And, and if we say yes, if, if we understand there to be some, you know, uh, authenticity in keeping with a primary text uh, then, then, then sure, we, we might have those conversations. And I would say yes in this film because Fanny Flagg worked on the screenplay too. So we know that we have an author invested in what kind of representation was happening on screen, uh, the same author who was invested in representations on the page. And so um, I think what's really fascinating about this film is that there are a number of departures from page to screen, as you might expect oh. in a film. Uh, and, and I would say this is not uncommon uh, for films in the 1990s that were adapted from novels. I'm thinking, of course, of Alice Walker's uh, Pulitzer Prize winning novel, uh, The Color Purple, and its film adaptation starring Danny Glover and Oprah Winfrey uh, and, and Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, sexuality in that film was, was hardly represented on screen, whereas the novel was rather explicit and Seely and Shug's sexual and homo-affectionate relationship with each other as, as black women. Um, here with, with Fried Green Tomatoes, you know, there is a secret in the sauce and it's that the film is hiding a lot, right? Uh, and I'm really struck by uh, one of Nini's last lines where she says, you know, truth is a funny thing sometimes, right? And, I, and I'm, I'm thinking about the older sort of etymological understandings of the word funny and odd and peculiar and how it's related and tracks with this term queer, right? Because the novel is exceedingly queer and, and explicit in its lesbian relationship uh, in a way that the film just is not. Uh, so thinking about those that ideology of secrets in the film as it relates or reading through the lens of the novel, um, a lot is coded or obscured or elided altogether in terms of race and sexuality.
sexuality and gender, and I hope I get to talk about these points um, individually, but I'll leave you here with some direct quotes from the novel uh, in, in thinking about this relationship between Iggy and Ruth. The film represents a strategic ambiguity, right? It really leaves it up to you. What do you see on screen? How do you re read their relationship, you know? For straight audiences, you're probably watching a film where we have two close female friends, right? They love each other in a platonic way. For queer audiences or those engaged in a queer practice of reading texts, you understand that there's lesbian desire on screen. There's lesbian identity politics work, that there's homo-affectionate networks, that an entire town recognizes that two women are raising a child and they're in business together. They live together, they love each other. Buddy Threadgood, Ruth's child, takes Iggy's last name, you know? So this is an entire culture in Whistlestop, uh, Alabama, that, that not only knows about it, accepts it, but, but even celebrates it in its normalcy. So uh, one of those quotes from the novel that I want to sort of leave with, and maybe a jumping off point to other discussions, uh, everywhere Ruth was, that's where Iggy would be. It was a mutual thing. They just took to each other, and you could hear them sitting on the swing, on the porch, giggling at night. Even Sipsy razzed her. She'd see Iggy by herself and say, that old love bug done hit Iggy. And one of the primary points that I want to leave you with here is that the novel represents Iggy and Ruth's relationship as a sort of love triangle with, Bad, with Buddy Threadgood before his death, right? Ruth is there as a sort of love interest of, Betty, of Buddies. Betty. Mm -hmm. uh, of Buddies. The novel is entirely different. Buddy's already dead by the time that Iggy and Ruth meet in the novel. So there's no sort of competing heterosexual love interest in the way that the, the film represents it. Um, and in fact, in the novel, it's Iggy who has this deep abiding, or I'm sorry, it's Ruth that has a deep abiding love for Iggy, which almost seems reversed on screen. It's funny, most people can be around someone and then gradually begin to love them and never know exactly when it happened. But Ruth knew the very second it happened to her, when Iggy had grinned at her and tried to hand her that jar of honey, all these feelings that she had been trying to hold back came flooding through her, and it was in that second in time that she knew she loved Iggy with all her heart. That's why she had been crying that day. She had never felt that way before, and she knew she would probably never feel that way again. So we can talk about race. We can talk more about sexuality. Well, I, I, I turned to Rachel towards the end, and I said one of the interesting things about the film is how rarely it shows the two of them in the same shot together, which is traditionally, in romance films, a way of visually uniting the couple. And very often, they're framed in single shots where there's an absence in the frame. And uh, on one hand, I was like, wow, that's playing it really safe and kind of... And on one hand, it almost becomes a visual metaphor of absence because right. it is so strange that she is not in most of those shots with her. But at the same time, the irony and the, the weirdness of the film is that it's more forthright about cannibalism at the end than it is actually about them being in a relationship together. It's like, let's be overly obvious that they ate the guy, but we're going to leave it up to your imagination whether or not you know they're actually involved together. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the other main differences here um, is that Ninny and Iggy are two different characters in the book, right? Whereas the film kind of takes them and combines them, where at the end, you're 99% sure Jessica Tandy is, is uh, Iggy, right? Um, so by like kind of 
confusing her backstory and talking about how she had a child and was married to somebody else. And it, 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 it gets really kind of, every time I watch it, I'm like, do we ever see this other character who she's supposed to be mm. on screen and we don't? Do we see Cleo, this guy that she marries on screen at all? Or is he ever spoken about? No, he's not. Yeah. Um, so the, the film very strangely uh, plays with absence even of other family members. You never see the, the aunt who throws things at Earl, who they're there to see. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, do we see Mrs. Otis? No, because that's the woman who's hospitalized in, in supposedly the reason why that Ninny is in, is in this, you know, advanced um, elderly care space. Yeah. In the, in the novel, um, Iggy is supposedly adopted into the Threadgood family. Uh, and, and she eventually marries um, one, one of the brothers okay. of, of the family. Yeah. Um, I wanted to hop back to a point that you made about um, the positioning of, of Buddy with the two of them in a, a love triangle at the beginning. I think that um, this is kind of an interesting trend in representations of, of lesbian existence uh, throughout time where uh, the, the kind of woman-woman relationship is positioned as like a last resort of a certain kind. So like Buddy has to die and then the husband, Frank, has to be terrible and then the women kind of like end up enfolding each other into some kind of comforting like solution to that mm -hmm. um, and there's really a good book about this called in consequence by by Anna Marie Jagos um, and I'm not sure if I'm saying her name right but uh, if she ever listens to this I'm sorry Anna Marie um, it's it's about the way that like female female relationships are kind of positioned as inconsequential, like as the kind of the thing that comes and ties everything up. They're not like, like what happens to men is what moves the story along. Mm -hmm. This is also Laura Mulvey's argument. Sure. What happens between women is what kind of like cleans up after the fact. And I think the, the Hollywood version of this is certainly doing that work. When you see that in the food fight scene yeah. where like, I guess the director had said, well, my intent was not to be overt, but when you watch the food fight scene, it's clearly that they're making love. Um, which, which I had heard about and Jamie reminded me of when we were watching. And of course it's all positioned through Grady's perspective as he's watching the two girls His mess around on the floor. Censoring you know, like uh, failing to sanction gays, you know, like uh, consuming it, right, in a, a male fantasy way at the same time, stepping in, what are y'all doing? I'm gonna have to, oh, I don't know, arrest you so that you'll stop what you're doing with each other in this kitchen, right? <laughs> um, because, because, it, yeah, and then the director's cut where he says, you know, I, we really thought the audiences would, would read the eroticism of that highly, you know, sexually charged food scene. And, you know, I think it just falls short in the same way that the honey uh, scene does as well. You know, like here we have two women in a field by a tree. One has gone <laughs> to retrieve a honeycomb. Uh, and I see you, Stephen, one second. And, uh, and, you know, comes back presenting, you know, sticky, dripping honey in a jar. And what does Ruth do? Take her two little fingers and, and, and put them in the jar and pull out the honey and taste it and whispers to Ruth, you know, you're just a bee charmer, or whispers to Iggy, you're just a bee charmer, you know? And it's just like, how can that symbolism be lost, you know, and completely obscured by a compulsory heterosexual gaze? You are invested in reading them as straight friends, right? Like that's all they are. Steven. I thought the bee tree scene was deeply erotic. Good. <laughs> I mean, that's like, that was pretty obvious. 
Okay. Anyway, but maybe I'm a little further along in career studies that I give myself credit for. Um, or well, just kind of, I, I know to, you know. Well, I, I, I think. Right, look, you have the two women together the whole time. No, at no point were they chasing another man or were men interested in them mm -hmm. per se. Mm -hmm. I thought it was, I thought it did what it was supposed to do. I mean, I, you know, granted they could have shared a few more kisses or we could have heard some noises behind them. I don't know what more you could have done. I don't know what more you could have done. I thought it was pretty obvious. But I know mm -hmm. folks in the 80s, late 80s watching this would have said, no, they're just good friends. Because at that time, I think a lot of people knew ladies who were good friends that they couldn't admit to themselves had something more going on but I don't know I, I, I think that maybe in more places than just Texarkana uh, that the dial has moved forward yeah, you know, like I appreciate your your reading and sort of picking up what what queer sort of symbolism is being put down on screen. But for 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 audiences that maybe had never read the book, or maybe even especially audiences who had read the book, it it didn't go far enough. At, in the way that it had been textually represented on the page. I mean, even the dialogue, for example, Ruth says to Iggy, you're just a bee charmer. In the novel, she says, you're just my bee charmer. You know, so like, n not, not just what isn't being represented on screen in terms of audience reception, but also how the, the film could have gone even farther with this sort of urtext of the, of the novel you know, and what its representation is. Well, and even the scene in the the uh, courthouse where she's like, she, I love her, but she's the best friend I ever had, where they're always mm -hmm. kind of adding this qualifier it's to that, it a bit. It's that ambiguity. And, and what's weird about, you had asked earlier what else came out in 91, and I had to Google really quick, because I couldn't <coughs> quite remember, but that was the year of Thelma and Louise, which is oh. actually much more overt <laughs> in yeah. terms of the, the relationship between the two lead characters and the love between them, where it is both of those things. Mm -hmm. This is actually, a, I have um, a little bit to contribute on that point, which is that this, this film arrives at a really interesting cultural moment on the cusp of this thing called new queer cinema, which is really kind of trying to represent LGBTQ lives um, in their kind of realistic forms. Um, but the, the thing that is also happening at that moment, as we like understand when we study culture a lot of these a lot of cultural trends um, are met with kind of an opposite trend at the exact same time like a, a backlash or whatever it is that, that kind of reflects it the new queer cinema is evolving in the 90s and also you get this this like mainstream um, appearance of both the lesbian killer the kind of femme fatale again or a seemingly lesbian relationship that turns murderous like in Thelma and Louise in Basic Instinct she's a killer bisexual um, and a lot of gay people like pr protested that film um, and then in this movie, there's, there's violence here. There's like a, an undercurrent of violence, um, which, which the patriarchy in the movie clearly recognizes as threatening, even though the audience doesn't have to. Um, and so that thing is appearing alongside uh, a kind of sexy lesbian chic. They call it lesbian chic, appears in 1993. There's kind of a, a cultural obsession with lesbians. At the same time as there's this interest in female-driven murder stories um, at the same time as, as gay people are trying to represent themselves uh, in a completely separate register from Hollywood. So all this is happening at once. Yeah, I like what you said about violence here in this film because it's an opportunity for us to have discussions about race in the film, right? Um, I think so many discussions of fried green tomatoes can uh, do the, the very grave injustice of obscuring the, the race 
uh, racial politics and racial issues in the film. Um, so when we talk about character in terms of sexuality, I think it's also important to discuss character in terms of race. Um, Sipsy and Big George in this film are reducible to um, almost tropic stereotypes, right? Uh, African Americans in the film are uh, represented as deferential, servile even, humble to the point of, of absolute devotion. We don't have any round characters in terms of African American representation in this film. We don't know what Big George thinks about having to you know, uh, barbecue up uh, Frank Bennett. We don't know how Sipsy feels uh, after uh, she she has to, you know, uh, sort of step in and, and, and undertake this grieving process with Ruth's death, you know? Um, African-Americans' needs, interests, uh, they're not represented in the film. They're only used in these sort of stereotypical ways to meet the needs of white characters in the film. So Iggy, from the very start, Big George is there to rescue her, right? Buddy dies in the train accident. Who steps in? Buddy, or who steps in? Big George, right? Um, Iggy, uh, it, you know, even in the moment where where Big George is is being beaten by the Georgia KKK, and I'm going to specify why I'm saying Georgia and not Alabama in a second uh, in the film. You know, what does Big George say? He's worried about Iggy. Iggy, go back inside. Iggy, you know, um, take care of yourself. I can handle this, right? Uh, so I think it's, it's important to note from my point of view uh, that the film is invested in representational images of African Americans that whites want to see. Right, and and I'm using that consciously. And a couple of my students are here from my uh, American literature class. And we just read Ralph Ellis, an excerpt from Ralph Ellison's novel, The Invisible Man, Chapter One, Battle Royale. And there's that iconic quote from James Baldwin, where he says, "You know, I'm invisible." The narrator in the novel says, "I'm invisible simply because people refuse to see me." Right, and so I think we have a host of African American characters in this film who are rendered invisible uh, because white audiences are not interested in their life stories. Right, and 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 I think that that tracks with the compulsive heterosexual readings of the Iggy Ruth relationship in terms of what is being secreted and hidden. And I don't think that's atypical of films at the time. I think no. Fried Green Tomatoes is very much kind of in that middle ground. Um, drama category where it's like if we get nominated for some Oscars that's fine but you had Driving Miss Daisy around the same sure. time with Jessica Tandy yeah. playing very you know and, and they're all invested in these fantasy sort of race relations between African Americans and white people all getting along which completely belies a historical reality of 1930s America where 3,500 African Americans were being lynched across the country right so like think about how this film is setting up a a sort of fantasy land around race relations totally. that is not a, a historical truth for the time period. Well, and I would add that the novel, in fact, does devote okay. more sort of to, oh, is that where you're going? Yeah, I was going to oh, ask. Okay, go, go. No, 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 no. I was going to I wasn't oh. sure if the characters in the novel were more well-rounded because yeah. part of me watching it this time definitely noted that, but I also noted that none of the characters aside from the main four really are more than kind of the actor playing them. Yeah. Where he's really good about picking character actors who look a certain part and using Cicely Tyson and, and kind of the star baggage that comes with her to fill that in. But they're not given any... Round. 
Yeah, they're not given any background or anything. Thoughts, like Frank feelings. Bennett is not given any. Sure. We don't know why he is that way. Yeah. Well, as much as I love Kathy Bates, this, you know, enter the B plot. The B plot in this movie does so much ideological work that ends up kind of flattening the depth that you could potentially find in the A plot. Like maybe there are all these secrets and like maybe the the characters in the A plot could just, could use a little bit more um, kind of loosening of their stories, but. Kathy Bates has an encounter at the hospital with a black woman, and it's kind of it's like a, an ideological moment of closure. Like they get along, and and we're telling stories that relate to each other, and we're now in some kind of multicultural, uh, like, fantasy of diversity of incorporation. Mm -hmm. The hospital is the place that everybody comes together, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the same thing happens at the, at the the end of the movie. Um, they're talking about kind of you know the the story gets tied up, and I think the line is you know who would have thought that a place like this could bring everybody together. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that kind of ideological closure continues today because I saw in, that Garden and Gun did a, a story on the 25th year anniversary of the movie and interviewed Fanny Flagg and they were like, what made this movie so popular? And she said, family values. <laughs> family Who's values. families, right? Which yeah. values? Yeah. And that's the, the word lesbian is not mentioned in that article at all. So Flagg's even saying, you know, let's, this is a story about everybody coming together. And, and on, slightly unrelated to that, but I was reading reviews of Green, uh, Green Book this week, which oh, is sure. the film with Viggo Mortensen, uh, where he's the driver for an African-American pianist. And it's very much kind of being perceived through that framework of 90s prestige dramas, where it is, it is Viggo Mortensen's story and how he becomes yeah. woke to race and the African-American character comes second. So this kind of trope of the help, I guess we would call yeah. it, um, is still very prevalent today. Kathy Bates' awakening. Her, her, Kathy Bates' liberation is, is as, as enjoyable as it is, kind of, kind of flattening, right? Like she, she is the star of her own story. Um, yeah, to this point about um, sort of um, African-American representation in the, in the novel, um, I will say that the novel in terms of its formal elements is, is a radical departure from the film. So the film we have, um, you know, you were saying A plot, B plot. The film we have uh, a pretty traditional embedded story, a frame within a frame text, right? We have 1930s, Whistle Stop, Alabama, Ruth, Iggy, Big George, Sipsy, right? And then we have 1980s America with, you know, Kathy Bates, uh, you know, <laughs> um, it, in some sort of relational awakening to women's rights uh, and, and, and self-autonomy and power, right? Uh, and with, with the novel, um, it, it takes an epistolary form, right? Uh, it's, it's not uh, a traditional narrative. Each chapter is demarcated by, uh, by actual uh, newspaper clippings. So May 6th, 1937, um, Flotsam and Jetsam newspaper, Piggly Wiggly Supermarket, May 19th, 1986, right? So the form of the novel uh, takes uh, this sort of dated newspaper article, we see a lot of temporal jumping uh, in the novel, as well as the sort of back and forth with the film. But many of the, the news stories and sort of collective memory of the town is being um, sort of articulated through a non-white point of view, which I, I, you know, we just, it's just so flat in the film. Almost, as I said, tropic, just. Could you speak to the treatment of violence in the book? Is there, is anything more explicit in the book? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and actually there's a huge, huge twist in the novel that I actually don't want to give away mm. ab about death and, and murder and who's responsible for what. Um, but, so I'll say read the book. 
I think the movie's just so interesting because it, it kind of curbs the threat that Iggy kind of affords to the patriarchy at every turn, and it also kind of curbs the threat that Kathy Bates' liberation offers because her... She's more the her, butt of the joke. She's the butt of the joke. Yeah. Like, when she's when she's running into people and, like, breaking through walls, it's like, haha, she's breaking through a wall, but what if she took that sledgehammer to her husband? Not saying she should, but, like, <laughs> the movie could have also done that. Um, so we've been talking a lot about sexuality and a lot about race, and um, we might turn now to just some observations on gender in the film. Um, so... For me, as a, a critical viewer, and I will say this, never watch a film with a film person or a lit person, we'll ruin it for you every time. Um, uh, immediately the film opens and, and Iggy is cast in blue, right? She's got this blue bow on her head. Even uh, when Nenny is in the hospital and we have the scene uh, where, um, Kathy Bates' character sees all the roses on the wall. You know, Nitty has has a has a blue robe on there. You know, uh, and it's an almost immediate foil with with Iggy's sister, Iggy's mother, wearing a pink sash. You know, and so we have this sort of another highly circulated trope in Southern literature and in Southern film: the uh, idealized paragon of Southern femininity, right? Ruth succeeds where Iggy fails, period, right? And Iggy, quote unquote, fails in her dress and in her speech and her disavowal of norms. Like she's gonna go gamble and she's not going to church. And you know, in all of these ways, she's challenging this paragon of Southern femininity um, trope that, that really the Ruth embodies and, and excels at in a way. And I would argue in the, in the 1980s frame, we then have Kathy Bates's character um, failing too, right? She's overweight, right? She is aging, right? She's uh, she's she's you know just in a lot of ways falling short of these expectations that that um, that continue to be placed on her as a woman in the South. Um. Speaking to the fa oh. to the failure of gender, do you want to can I say one more yeah, thing? Totally. Can I say something about masculinity really quickly? I was gonna go there too. You go ahead. Well, I'm gonna talk about male masculinity. I'll you, boo. No, talk about female masculinity. Yeah. So you remember the scene where um, we're smoot, 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 smoot. Yeah, smoot. yeah. The, the sheriff or the, <laughs> the, the agent from yeah. Smoot uh, comes in from Georgia and is like, you know, I'd like some barbecue and I'm looking for Frank. And uh, oh yeah. And. Uh, What's his name? The the town sheriff, the big guy. Grady. Grady is like, you know, I've heard some things about you folks over there in Georgia. I heard that Frank is a little sissified, right? Which is a sort of coded use for male homosexuality, right? Like I I've heard that you guys aren't real guys, right? I've heard that you that Frank, in fact, was a, a bit of a sissy himself, you know, as though a he's not worth searching for, b his death isn't worth you know sort of solving, right? Um, and, and there's another moment in the film where we have this sort of male masculinity conversation underway, and that's when we get into the scene with the Georgia KKKers and the Alabama KKKers, right? So the moment in the film when, when Big George is being beaten, uh, those are Georgia KKKers who have come in, right? And, and immediately, Grady is just on the scene, you know, that's not how we do it here. And then we see all the white men of, the, of, of Whistle Stop coming in with their guns in the background, you know, and there's almost going to be a showdown between the white KKKers of Alabama and the white KKKers of Georgia, right? Um, the, the, 
the race relations, the idealized race relations of, of whistle stop are disrupted by the Georgia KKK, right? They're literally coming in and because they're coming in trying to enforce how it should be done, that further reveals how far from normal, you know, whistle stop is. is. Yeah, good point, good point. The, the other it. thing yeah. worth noting in that smooth scene too is that so, uh, Grady is mocking him, right? And he's got the Panama hat and the mustache, and he is kind oh, of dandified in yeah. a certain way. Um, but then he turns on Iggy and is like, he says something along the lines of, like, isn't that right, girly girl? girl. Yeah. Or she sits down in the, and he's kind of like, there's this kind of totem pole at work in terms of who gets, you know, to be in what power yeah. position there. Yeah, and, and, and who's being oppressed in which terms, you know. And there's there's a, a great visual cue, too, that I, I thought of when you were speaking about Inny and Niji, uh, uh, Niji, Iggy. Iggy and Ninny, Ninny yeah. sorry, being the same character, which is uh, when she's, I think she's like when she's like 10, she's, no, 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 it's, it's when it cuts to Mary Stuart Masterson playing her. She's wearing the unlaced boots and they're just kind of flailing about on her feet. Um, whereas when they go to visit Ninny in the, the home, she's got the Chuck Taylors that are kind of like the mm -hmm. laces are all over and she's got the Argyle socks pulled mm -hmm. up. So mm -hmm. they're even kind of alluding to that a little bit mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. um, but, but it becomes so, uh, you know, like tightly well, like obscured for the audience, you know, like, I mean, it, it it, it, it's hard to pick out who's sure. what. Like, is is that Iggy? You know, who, who's Ninny? Why are they married? Wait, what? She had a kid and was married? Clearly she's not that lesbian from before. I mean, you it's, know. It's, to me, it seems like a, a, an easy way to use ambiguity to tie Iggy into a kind of maternal narrative, like, so that, um, you know, if, if Stephen can, can like understand the honey thing, our, our southern grandmothers can still love this movie, not understanding <laughs> the honey thing and also understanding Iggy as like a caretaking kind of grandmotherly figure mm -hmm. in the end. Like mm -hmm. she's not, not only has she had a kid, but also she's like caretaking for Kathy Bates and teaching her how to be a lady. And like all these things mm -hmm. are, are occurring. So the um, norms are just... Yeah. So the more, the closer Iggy and Minnie get, I think the film gets more conservative. It's a, or not, you know, socially conservative or something like that. Yeah, no, it was weird. Uh, Angie turned to me midway through when they were at the, the feminist house learning to look at their vagina. And she's <laughs> like, you watched this movie with your grandma? And I was like, just keep watching. It's not like it's that progressive at the end of the day, right? Yeah. It, it, it very much plays it safe. And let me also add, these sort of home interventions were very much the rage uh, among white, you know, middle class, stay-at-home moms uh, who weren't supporting, um, who weren't working basically in a public sphere. Uh, it was very much the rage in the 1980s to sort of get together in these women's groups. It was just like the Tupperware parties, right? Like everybody had time for this because A, they were white and B, they weren't working. And C, you know, like the, this was a sort of patriarchal height of the of the 80s where we had- The Reagan backlash. Yeah, the Reagan, yeah, yeah. Susan Faludi has this book, The Backlash, which is about the Reagan years and the kind of like anti-feminist trends in the public sphere at that time. But that's actually, some, goes back to something I wanted to say about the, the Eve upon which this movie arrives, it's it's the lesbian rage moment, and and like film historians sometimes remember it as this this time in the early '90s when um, all all these like murders and things that I was mentioning earlier in film get coded as non-lesbian, like they get kind of written out, the sexuality gets written out of them, right? But there's like a moment when women's rage has a heyday. Mm -hmm. And I want to say, Wanda. this movie comes out five, four years after Steel Magnolias, which is a very different kind of warm, mm -hmm. Southern mm -hmm. uh, female camaraderie kind of film. Um, that you can tell that this movie comes out in the, in the lady rage moment, post Reagan, right? As mm -hmm. opposed to in 
the Reagan moment of, of Steel Magnolias. Like that's, that's a four year turnaround in the time that it took for this book to get made into a movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've been speaking. Do you have any questions, Q&A from the audience? Thoughts? Questions first, then thoughts. Thoughts first. Yeah, yes, Stephen. Do you know the author of uh, Fried Green Tomatoes? Was she a fan of Adrian Ridge by chance? Yeah, so I'm glad well, you're... That's what I want to talk about. Um, yeah. Because um, at the beginning of the movie, you know, you see, we, we studied the semester diving into the wreck, and then the first thing that really came to mind when you see this vehicle coming out of the, of the river, it's almost a reverse, if you, you know, it could be a reverse of diving into the wreck. The wreck is now being put on the screen. I'm just wondering if in the book it was, if there was, more, does it start with the car coming out of the water, or is that just something that's not even, this is, that's just a device that's used in the, in the Hollywood film for later on? Okay, so there are about three questions there, and let's take them in turn. One, um, Fanny Flagg and Adrian Rich, right? So Adrian Rich is a 20th century um, lesbian Jewish poet, um, national uh, poet laureate, uh, national book awardee, uh, alongside Alice Walker, who I mentioned earlier, uh, and, um, and Audre Lorde, um, a black feminist, lesbian, warrior, poet, mother, uh, self-identified. Um, so when you ask about Adrian Rich here with Fanny Flagg, I thought initially you were uh, thinking about Adrian Rich's uh, sort of canonical piece of, of criticism, uh, compulsory heterosexuality in the lesbian lived existence, which sort of argues for a, a continuum of lesbian relationships that don't necessarily, um, you know, advocate for existence or proof along sexuality, but instead sort of asks us to fold all types of female-centered and female-embodied relationships together into this lesbian continuum. So close girlfriends, right? I would say, you know, Sex in the City, those four characters, right? Rich would say, well, that's an example of a lesbian continuum to the extent at which it's not focused on sexuality between these women, but it's focused on this intensely female woman driven like bonding experiences and love and closeness right in fact sex in the city it's, they say you know all the men are, are secondary in our lives right all the, are, the four of us we we are each other's core relationships right um and so getting into your second question about the imagery of the of the truck being lifted out of the lake i, I mentioned to drew before on um, the screening started that that for me there's a lot of foreshadowing in the first 10 seconds of the film right we have the color of rusted a rusted truck right which kind of looks like barbecue which kind of looks like blood right uh, we have this truck sort of being pulled out of the lake you know you get some sense that you know secrets are going to be revealed or explained which means secrets have to get made to begin with right um so there's a you know i think it's particularly astute of you to to gravitate towards that that opening moment in the film for for what it sort of foreshadows in terms of what's yet to come and the payoff on that takes a long time. Sure. Like I, I had forgotten and I tried to watch this film outside of myself this time and I was like, you see that car and you don't know where that's going From until about 45, 75 50, minutes yeah. more than that. It's like, it's, you know, it's well into like the second act where you're like, oh, okay, this is, this is a murder mystery. That's right. <laughs> I appreciate all of you guys coming out tonight, the, one of the nights before Thanksgiving and hearing us talk and watching a movie for almost three hours, so I appreciate your time. <laughs> Thanks again to Rachel and Jamie for joining me on a Tuesday night before Thanksgiving. And of course, thanks 
to all of my students and the faculty who supported us, uh, faculty and staff and uh, such who had uh, come out for the event. It was, uh, it was actually I was really surprised by how well attended it was. About 16 people on a on a Tuesday night before Thanksgiving when most of my classes had five of them. Uh, or five five of the 20 students in them this week. So um, I think the last episode of the year is going to be in two weeks. And I think that last episode is going to be on Hour of the Wolf with uh, Daniel Humphrey. And I say I think because I may get creative over the break and decide to record another one. Um, but... I also want to get through the Sigmar Bergman set. I want to take some time to watch other movies. I want to enjoy time with my wife. Um, so it all depends on basically how bored I get over uh, the Christmas break. You know, so we'll definitely have an episode in two weeks where we talk about uh, Hour of the Wolf. Otherwise, it may be the end of January where I come back, and I'm really excited to announce this one. And I discuss Mikey and Nikki the uh, Elaine May film with Maya Smuckler, who actually has a new book coming out about um, 70s female directors in Hollywood. So she's going to be my guest to talk about Mikey and Nikki at the end of January. Otherwise, you'll hear us talking about Hour of the Wolf in just a couple weeks. But yeah, we'll probably be taking a Christmas uh, holiday sabbatical to uh, so I can be with my family. But thank you all for tuning in, and we'll see you at the movies.